Good afternoon, everyone. Good evening or good morning, depending on when you're watching this. Uh, welcome back to another Merged Worlds <clears throat> Dungeons & Dragons story stream. We meet here every other Tuesday uh, to share the story of the Dungeons & Dragons campaign series that I've been writing and running for over 30 years. Uh, tonight, <clears throat> of course, we'll be continuing that story, uh, but stepping into a, a, ne a next phase of it, um, the last several episodes... We've been telling the story from Seraph and his group's point of view, and today we're going to be jumping over to artists Maeve Petal, Ran, and Kip, and uh, telling what they're doing at this time period. Um, we do a little bit of a recap, mostly on where we last left off for them, and then talk about the, the time change, the time difference in between there, uh, because Seraph's story encompassed months, almost half, close to a year's worth of story, um, so we need to kind of account for that time here. When we last left off with Artis and her friends, uh, it was under slightly different situation. They just completed their own little adventure and were prepared to move on and continue their search to try to find or potentially catch up to Seraph and his group. Uh, so thank you for coming by and giving me the opportunity to share this story. As always, I appreciate it. If you uh, enjoy yourself, whether it's watching it today or down the road, it would be awesome if you would mind consider clicking that like button. Be sure to subscribe to the channel. And of course, this is also available on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else you get podcasts. It would be awesome if you'd give us a follow, a rating, and some stars, or reviews, whatever it is, over on the podcast uh, of your choice. It'd be awesome to have your feedback there as well. As well as any questions, feel free to put those down in the comments. I'm looking at setting up here in the next few weeks a special stream that's going to be a mixture between a uh, you know, kind of covering how 2nd edition D&D works. So I've had a lot of people asking about that since I play primarily 2nd edition, although very heavily customized uh, to my own style, as well as a Merged Worlds AMA kind of mixed in there. So we're going to talk about a bunch of that stuff. So if you're interested in that, keep an eye on the channel. We'd uh, love to have you come by for that as well. All right. So where we left off for artists and friends, uh, they had just been in a kingdom where they... Uh, king, per will, uh, was under the sway of his daughter, who turned out to be a cleric of evil, cleric of darkness specifically, which is the primary god of evil in the merged world's universe. Uh, she had escaped on a shadow dragon, at which point they had uh, had to make their way back to their ship, the Miss Dandelion, which of course is a ship that's been in the storyline for a long time, if you've been following with us. Um, so that way they could continue back down the river south, pass through the area they originally came through. That took weeks, of course, making their way back to um, the Central Sea, uh, which is a large, huge ocean-like sea, which is smack dab in the middle of Merge Worlds. And a lot of the uh, cities and countries and things that we mess with in the story uh, take place on or very close to that Central Sea. Hello, Mr. Jim. Excellent. Look forward to seeing her as well. Miss Ashley should be here soon. Um, hopefully Jimmy had a chance to catch up on last episode. If not, that's okay. What we're doing today won't ruin any of that storyline. This is starting a, a next section anew, so uh, all new stuff there. Um, so now they were, they were taking the Miss Dandelion and heading back south. Again, Miss Dandelion was Darsh's very first ship he ever bought, very early in the Merge World storyline. Uh, just a small ship, and then he as he 
grew and started getting larger ships, started to build his own fleet. He gifted this ship to Dandy, who's the Kender friend of theirs in the group, and she used that ship uh, for quite a while as part of her and Michael's undead hunting before she moved to Serenity full-time. Um, so at that point, the ship just kind of hanging around Darstopia, which is Darsh's Islands, working for them and helping out where needed. WW pops in, easy day at the factory tonight. Hey, excellent. Well, hopefully it's a, a, an enjoyable story for you, my friend. <laughs> um, so Darsh had sent the ship uh, to help artists and their friends with their journey. Uh, of course, which point they realized that Quintius, which is the magical artifact scepter that uh, artists had brought with her from her family's armory, uh, they learned that it was a sentient, uh, intelligent artifact and Quintius was the spirit inside of it, uh, was the artifact itself, learning that uh, literally thousands upon thousands of years ago, he was a cleric of the light who uh, forged it and became part of it. Uh, and that's when they found out about the great game, which is the whole storyline that everything is built up to, where the gods are building or playing a game where Seraph is the primary piece. And at the end of the game, Seraph is going to have to make a choice and which of the choices he makes will determine the fate of Merged Worlds and everyone in it. A little Spider-Monkey plays. Um, so they know about the game. Although Seraph, who's the main key of it, doesn't know that it exists yet at this point. They're still unaware of it. Although he's already been uh, manipulated. And manipulated to, you know, people were trying to sway him one way or another. Artist is trying to catch up with them, but then they got derailed by Quintius, who's like, hey, here's the game, but if we don't go up here and deal with this situation that ended up being the princess I talked about earlier, uh, a fate worse is going to basically destroy your home and everybody in it, and it could cause them to lose. So, one of those things, right? Uh, hey, WW, thank you very much for joining our membership program here. I really appreciate that. The pop-ups don't pop up as much on Merge Worlds because of the audio podcast. But thank you very much for joining. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for your first support. Uh, WW has joined our membership program here on YouTube. Comes a bunch of cool perks. And Miss Teresa shows in. Uh, no interruptions. Like I've had every other time for Merge World. But we're happy to have you here as well. Perfect timing because we're jumping into uh, some heavy story and lore today. Uh, so... Where we're jumping into the story, it has been months since all the stuff I just talked about happened. Okay? Months since all that has happened. And they are... Again, they went back to the Miss Dandelion. We're making the way south. One of the last things that we learned in that uh, of their section is that Kip, who is the, the bard, half-elven bard friend, uh, the gentleman who joined them early in the adventure and is now at the beginnings of a relationship with Ran who's uh, the war rogue slash warrior of the group, um, was also a spy for someone um, who's been spying on them or a plant in the group, although no one there knows anything about that, just you guys. So that's kind of cool as well. So today there's going to be a lot of reading involved. I've written a lot to get this started. So um, I'm hoping you guys will enjoy this uh, as we're jumping back into the artists and friends section we're gonna have an opportunity for some of those other characters in that group to really step forward and shine in part of this story um artists has been uh, the heavy lead in up until this point with pedal getting a little we're gonna give some more time to everybody involved um and this is gonna set the stage for episodes several episodes at least going in a row uh long-term storyline for these guys so hopefully you enjoy this intro i'd love to hear your comments after it's all said and done so we're gonna go ahead and jump right in 
Uh, and again, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to do so. All right, here we go. Right off the bat, start with some reading, like always. The Miss Standylion was sinking. The storm had come out of nowhere, catching them completely by surprise. For hours, they'd been assaulted by high winds, torrential rain, and waves unlike anything they'd ever experienced. Now, setting that stage, um, cap the captain, Lyman, who's been the captain since way back since Dandy's had it, is a very experienced sailor. So for a storm to pop up like this in the way that it has, with his experience, uh, as well as the experienced sailors on the ship, very unusual unlike anything they've ever had happen before. But again, it is merged worlds, and they're in areas that they've never been before. They've traveled quite a distance. They've gone all the way south back to the Central Sea and continued on towards the east, hoping to catch up with Seraph, although they didn't know which direction he is, only that he was going east. There've been, they have no information on any sightings of Seraph or where Seraph is at this point, and Quintius has not provided them or has been given himself any specific information to that nature. But where they are right now, they're being hit by a huge storm, massive waves. And at this point, the Miss Dandelion is sinking. Then came the worst, the moment that the mast snapped. The heavy wooden beam toppled over and off the deck. It was attached to the ship through many ropes, and before anyone could do anything to cut them free, the mast pulled the ship over onto its side. So I want you to imagine this. The mast that holds the main sails, obviously the sails have probably been pulled in at this point. I have limited boat knowledge, so let's hope I'm saying that rightly. But the mast breaks, it's all strapped down holds, how the gears and so on, snaps partway through and it falls off the ship and the weight of it, because the sails are still attached to it, even if they're unfurled, they're going to gather water, it's going to start to pull the ship over onto its side. Pedal was an excellent climber, having inherited her mother's incredible dexterity. Remember, Pedal is... Half human, half kinder. Even still, she was barely able to grab onto one of the ship's ropes with one hand as the ship began to turn. In her other hand, she gripped her satchel. Against the captain's orders, she'd return to her quarters to get it. Its contents were far too valuable to risk getting lost, even worth her own life. Some of you may remember she picked up something in the last adventure that was very important to her, though we don't know why. Another large wave crashed into the ship, and Petal felt the wood beneath her feet give way. She clung to the rope as she dangled just a few feet over the churning sea. She felt her hand slipping on the wet rope and began to slide further down. Suddenly, there was a strong arm around her, pulling her back onto the ship. She felt herself lifted up and carried across the sinking ship, and before she realized what happened, she was tossed, rather roughly, into a small lifeboat, as other hands pulled her inward to safety. Get in, one of the men in the boat cried. Go, yelled back a familiar voice. I have to help the others. The man drew his sword and cut the rope holding the lifeboat to the ship. Petal turned to watch Captain Lyman making his way back across the sinking vessel. Petal could only watch in horror as a large chest strapped to the ship broke away, falling and striking the captain, knocking him overboard. Petal cried out, as he disappeared into the water. Maeve had been helping at the stern of the ship, her incredible strength and experience proving invaluable. Again, she's a minotaur. She's the strongest person on the ship. Even though there are other couple minotaur on here, Maeve is exceptionally strong. She inherited that from her father. And Darsh being basically a, a, a commandant, what you call him, he has his own armada of ships. She was raised on the sea. She knows a lot about working on the ship, so her experience is definitely helpful in something like this. 
When the ship flipped, Maeve had been helping the boatswain get crew into the rear lifeboats. It had been lowered when the ship turned, so they just lowered the lifeboat. They were lowering it, she and the boatswain, who's a member on the ship, we can talk about that if you need to know what that is, a member of the crew who's in charge of equipment and crew, and they were lowering that life raft, which they have to do from the ship, and then the goal was they would then climb down into it. It barely had hit the water when the ship began to flip. When the ship flipped, Maeve had been helping... I already said that, sorry. And has been lowered when the ship uh, turned. Crew and supplies began to slide to starboard, including Maeve. In a moment, she found herself in the water. Maeve managed to struggle to the surface, finding herself a short distance from the ship. Looking around, quickly saw that the lifeboat trying to save uh, members of the crew from the water. She began to swim towards them. So that lifeboat she landed, they're now trying to pick up people who fell into the water relatively close to the ship, right? People who didn't make it or were trying to help lower them like the boatswain, folks like that. She'd almost reached it when she heard a cry for help somewhere nearby. A short distance away, she was able to make out the head and shoulders of Ran swimming towards them. She could see he was pulling someone along with him, who appeared unconscious. And while she couldn't see the person's face, she recognized her blonde hair easily. Maeve adjusted her course and fought her way through the waves over to him. She could see blood on his face, but couldn't make out where he'd been injured. Rand's face changed to relief at the sight of her. Maeve grabbed onto Artis as well, and the two together swam towards the life wrap, which uh, had seen them and was making their way over. So she sees Rand in the water, pulling an unconscious artist, trying to swim. Rand's an okay swimmer, I'm sure he's skilled, but this type of water is beyond his capability. Maeve's stronger swimmer, stronger person, gets over there, helps grab her, and the two of them are now pulling it over. It's been much easier on Rand, much easier to get to the boat. The boat noticed them, because we'll be honest, Maeve is definitely going to stand out in the water, being as large as she is, horns and all that, she's a minotaur. So the boat's like, oh, there's some, we got to go help them. Uh, let's see. Upon reaching the boat, Maeve ordered Rand in first to help load Artis. With the help of a crew on board, he climbed in easily. Again, he's also very dexterous. While he's a warrior, he's very close to a rogue-like in many of his abilities, much like his father. Uh, next, they struggled to pull in the unconscious princess. The men had just began to pull her in when the, cr when the crash and creaking of wood could be heard. The mast had finally pulled a large piece off the deck with it, dis uh, with it before dis disappearing below the sea. So the mast, where it was braced, the bottom part of it in ropes, has literally ripped a chunk of the deck off the ship, and that's caused it to finally sink. That's going to leave a big hole, right? A big hole in the front main deck of the ship, which is now on its side. The giant hole was now rapidly filling with water as the ship began to sink deeper. Maeve knew she only had seconds. Grabbing the side of the boat with one hand, she heaved as hard as she could, shoving Artis into the air and onto the boat. The momentum, though, pushed Maeve away at the same time. Before she could try to swim back, she could feel it. As the Miss Dandelion made its final surge down into the deeps, it caused a great suction, pulling everyone and everything in the water towards it. Because that's going to happen. As it goes in and it sucks the water into that ship and it's going under, it's going to cause a, a, a current, a pull towards that. Maeve, as strong as she is, not going to be able to fight against that. While it may only last a short while, it's very, very strong. The crews on the lifeboats paddled and fought the currents as best they could, trying to get away from it, understandably. Maeve, with her great strength, though, was powerless to stop it. The cold water completely surrounded her like a frozen, deadly shadow. She fought to swim to the surface, but had lost all sense of direction. 
very easy to do underwater. You lose, are you even swimming up at this point? I could be swimming deeper. The water's churning and the waves smashing like the good. It's very easy to lose which direction you're actually swimming. And while it's not nighttime, it is late afternoon. I should have said that earlier. But the storm clouds and everything makes it very, very dark. So it's not pitch black. There's no starlight, obviously, from the storms. It's just very gray and dark. Uh, let's see. Something hard and heavy struck her in the side. She tried to push away from it, but something else struck her in the back of the head. As she slipped slowly into unconsciousness, she could only hope her friends would make it okay. So she's been pulled under the water by this suction, right? Which is also pulling anything else in the water. Everything that's fallen off the ship. Anything that wasn't strapped down or wasn't strapped down well enough. Could be part of the ships, could be other people. Uh, I mean, they don't have cannons and such, but they do have... Uh, I believe it had a small catapult on the front of uh, the Miss Dandy line. They decided to go with a catapult instead of uh, the giant crossbow-looking thing that I'm forgetting the name of right now. Um, so again, they were going to have some type of rocks or something, projectiles to shoot from that, even just a few. And that thing could come loose as well with the weight of it. So you can imagine a lot of heavy stuff in the water all swirling in this current that's being caused by a ship sinking down, right? They are not in sight of shore. They are out into the water, although they're not like miles and miles out. They are distance, but far enough that you can't see the shore where they are. They're in relatively deep water. So something hits her real hard in the side, like enough to like potentially crack a rib or like cut her deeply. It's, it's a very hard blow. And before she can try to push off from wherever it is, another heavy thing hits her in the back of the head. Stuns her to the point that she's blacking out. She can sense she's blacking out underwater, not knowing which direction she was swimming, and all the last thing she thinks of is her friends. Right? Just kind of set that stage for everybody. Alright. So at that point, Maeve is unconscious. Does she make it? Let's continue. We'll find out. I'm going to take a sip, though. Alright. So. The first thing that she felt was pain. Her head pounded worse than any hangover she'd ever experienced. Maeve lay on her back, surrounded in darkness. She could feel something over her eyes. She tried to lift her arm, her hand, to remove it, but her arm immediately shot with pain. Rest easy, little sister, said an incredibly deep voice from next to her. It was unfamiliar to her, yet somehow comforting. It is good you are awake, came the voice again. You've been out for many days, and I was concerned you may never waken. Where am I? Maeve managed to ask through her parched and dry throat and lips. You are safe and among friends, said the voice. My friends, exclaimed Maeve. I must find them. Are they all right? Easy, little sister, she heard. They are here, though I am told not everyone from your ship survived. I am sorry for your loss. Every life is sacred, and we mourn the passing of all who are taken too soon. Maeve again tried to sit up, struggling through the pain in her head and arm. Gently, said the voice, as he placed his hand on her arm to help. His very large hand. A hand covered in fur. Ignoring the pain, Maeve snatched the wet cloth that had been over her eyes and removed it. She was in some kind of hut or tent. It was large and made of some kind of large leaves and cloth, leathers and such, in the combination, and its furnitures were very sparse. 
She lay on a bed that's barely above the ground, more like just a very low cot. Sitting next to her was another minotaur. He was not, he was not far from her age, within probably a few years. His fur was a light brown, and he had striking blue eyes. He was very muscular and in good shape, although Maeve estimated he was a hand shorter than her. His most striking features, though, were his horns. Like all minotaur, he had a pair of large, long horns growing from his brow. But unlike any other minotaur she'd ever seen, his were curved and spiraled, much like that of a ram. Who are you? she asked. The young minotaur smiled. My name is Brota Waveslinger. You are safe with me and my people. Uh, Teresa says, just listen to the episode where Darsh bought the dandelion. Oh, wow. It's a ways back there. <laughs> so you're going to jump forward to the future there. It's a lot of, lot, it gets in a lot of adventures between there and now, Teresa. So he introduced himself as Brota Waveslinger. Says that, that she and her friends are safe with him and his people. Now, he was dressed in very common leathers, and around his neck was a thin rope with which hung uh, three large shark teeth. I need to see my friends, Maeve said flatly. While Broda had only been kind to her, she needed to know more about her situation. Broda nodded and handed her a large horn filled with water. Of course. It is too soon for you to be up, though. Wait here, and I shall fetch them for you. She nodded, sipping from the horn, as Broda rose and left through the tent's opening, pushing aside the blanket or tarp that was covering it. For just a moment, she could see sand nearby and heard the crash of the waves hitting a beach. Broda wasn't gone long before the tents opened once again, or the tents opening once again flew open and artists rushed in. Seeing each other, both women had tears rushed to their eyes. Each was afraid they'd lost each other. Uh, they embraced for several minutes. How long was I out? Maeve finally asked. Nearly six days, said Artis. We were afraid we'd lost you. Who did we lose? Maeve asked, fearing the answer. Artis's face fell. We lost about half the crew. Smitley, Gervin, Kayla, Jin, Laren. Sadly, we lost Captain Lyman. He saved Petal, though. But both Rand and Kip are also fine as well. The two women were silent a moment in memory of their lost comrades. Captain Lyman had been with the ship since before any of them had been born. They knew Petal's mother, Dandy, would be heartbroken at the news. There's something else, said Artis. I've lost Quintius. He was in my belt when everything happened. I fear he slipped loose and is lost forever. He has not appeared for me even once since the night of the sinking. I remember Quintius, while he's a, a magical scepter, very powerful one, he appears visually as a human shape to her, human form, as a young man, uh, that only she can see and hear. Um, and he has been a bit of a guidance for her, um, helping her with what needs to be done, providing her information. Uh, he is himself a conduit from the, basically what he says, the goddess of light. That he, knowledge is given to him, although he doesn't know why or how, and that knowledge, when it is given, is what he shares with her. Uh, but he's also been around a really long time. From his history, we know that he had a noble, if not royal, path of his own life. So he's familiar with a lot of things of court and so on and so forth. So he would be very, um, a very 
good advisor because he's very all the knowledge he's ever had he still has he doesn't lose any of that he's been alive for thousands of years at this point so from an advisor's point of view to a young woman who's a princess one day going to be a queen and at the same time um a cleric of truth well not of the light again you can see how much of a benefit would be having someone like that but unfortunately he, while he appears he is limited in the range he can appear to her so if he did slip out of her belt in the water and sink to the bottom of the sea, it's very likely he's far too far away to be able to reach out to her. He too is a great loss, replied Maeve. While I never had the chance to see him myself, his guidance was invaluable. Because artists would say, hey, here's what Quintius says. Here's what we know from Quintius. And while he could hear them, they couldn't see or hear him at all. Only artists can. So she would relay that. So Maeve's never seen or heard the man specifically, or the, the artifact technically. She's seen the scepter. She's never heard his voice. So say, hey, he was very helpful. It's great loss to have lost something like that. And views him, while he's an artifact, they think of him much more like a person. Yeah, this is his physical form here, but he's a thing that appears that only artists can see. He is still a he, it's not just a, a, a scepter, if you would. The two women talked for a short while. Artists explained how Broda and his people had helped them. His people were a mix of races, mostly minotaur and human, with a few elves sprinkled in as well. Artists didn't know much about their past, but they were a friendly lot that lived near the shore. They lived simply and showed no signs of wealth, most importantly, none of them were ever armed. Artists hadn't seen a single weapon worn by any of them in their entire time here. Broda's people were pacifists and state that they did not participate in violence of any kind. Maeve, as you can imagine, was shocked at the news. She'd never heard of a minotaur that refused combat. So ingrained was the life of a warrior into their society that everyone was trained to fight from birth, basically. She couldn't imagine anything else, right? Even though she grew up in serenity and all that, she's still trained to be a warrior. She's a paladin now. She originally was on a path to be a cleric and then diverted to become a paladin. So she has all the paladin abilities. And she's actually going to be able to help heal herself at this point now that she's awake when she regains a bit of her strength. Artis has some healing as well, although her healing is very minor. They don't have a powerful healer in this party like they did with Artemis, their parents' group, right? Because they're clerics of truth and paladin of truth. They have some healing, but it's very minor. Um, Broad and his people, whether they have or not, we'll see, but they helped with a lot of the healing up until this point. But to say, oh, here's a minotaur who has other minotaurs and lives with humans and... and uh, some elves, which in itself is a little rare, but not as much, because that's how Maeve was raised. So that would seem more normal to her. In fact, she grew up in Serenity, where there's very few Minotaurs. So she's more used to, okay, I can see us mixing, but in both of those situations, Minotaurs were still Minotaurs. They're warriors first. Even the clerics of whatever. You could be a, you could be a chef. You're still a warrior first. That's kind of the path. So this hearing that Broda and his people are pacifists, don't have weapons, and don't fight at all, very much opposite of anything she's ever experienced with Minotaurs before. Just then, Broda once again entered the hut. He smiled genuinely at the two young women. I have someone bring you something to eat, Maeve. While I'm sure you're eager to get up and about, you're still healing. It'll be best if you stay here to rest, at least until the morrow. After you've regained your strength, we'll help you get out and get around. Maeve begrudgingly agreed, and Artis promised to come back later. Maeve laid back down to rest her eyes for just a moment while she waited on the food to arrive. By the time it got there, 
she was already snoring. <laughs> Passed right back out again. The next day, Maeve felt well enough to leave the hut. It took a few moments for her eyes to adjust to the bright sun and the warmth. So inside the hut, there's no windows, obviously. It's pretty dark in there. Probably had a small fire. Even in the summertime, it can get cool if you've ever been to the beach. It can get cool on the beach at night. A lot of winds there. So it has a small fire. So she's more used to warmth isn't as bad, but she would have been in that hut for days without really seeing sunlight. Uh, Broda's community sat just far enough inland to be safe from the stormy seas. Maeve learned these people adored the ocean and their life based around it. The food they ate came from small farming plots and everything else from the sea. It appeared there were about a hundred people overall with just a few children. So the layout itself is it's a good distance from the sea. You can see the sea from where it is, but storms and stuff's going to make bigger waves. They're far enough away that they're near the sea. They can see it, but they're not in as much danger. Probably comes up on a bit of a hill. They're on a bit of a rise. So again, it's more protection from waves and storms. They all live in these small hut-like homes um, that appear to be, you know, not brand new, probably a couple years, but nothing in the area looks to be very, very old. You know, older buildings, there's nothing made out of stone. Everything is built out of the same very basic material. And when I say farming plots, again, living close to the shore, it's mostly sand and stuff, hard to grow there. It's possible they may have even transported dirt over to make farming plants that they could grow vegetables and herbs and things that they might need out of. Uh, the layout itself is mostly uh, donut-like, if you will. So it's rounded, the community. A large communal bonfire in the center. Um, very likely uh, the community itself is very communal in the way that it eats. They, you know, Groups will prepare food. Community eats together. Everybody works. There's no, there's no one. While they may have certain skills, and somebody may be good at tanning, and somebody good at leather working, whatever that case is, there's no profession, uh, professions. They don't work and pay each other in currency. It's a, it's a very communal way of living here. Um, everyone works for the benefit of all of them. Uh, let's see. As Maeve was given a tour, everyone from the community uh, was excited to meet her. Uh, friendly smiles and welcomes were everywhere. And I said there were very few children. None of the children appear to be older than five or six years old. It's important. Okay? So all the children are young. You don't see a lot of teenagers. Um, it's, it's all going to be of a younger crew. And several of the children are going to be human. Some of them are going to be minotaur. Uh, there are no elven children in the community at all. There's very few elves. Probably three or four of them. Maeve was overjoyed to see Ran, Kip, and Petal shared each of their stories about their escape from the sinking ship. Petal wept openly as she told of Captain Lyman's last heroic act to save her. Ran told of the chaotic ride in the, life, ride in the lifeboat, trying to keep artists safe and make sure that they didn't flip and lose artists. Last it came to Kip, who hesitated, trying to skip by the conversation. Ran, though, would not stand for it. He told Maeve how Kip had grabbed the rope of the lifeboat, tying it to himself and giving the other end to the crew. Kip had dived back into the, into the ocean, dis disappearing for what seemed like forever. The crew began to reel in the rope, though it felt like they'd caught a whale on the other end. When Kip finally again breached the water, he was wrapped around Maeve, pulling her, pulling her to the surface with him. Maeve was too heavy to lift onto the lifeboat without capsizing it. Once Kip and Maeve had gotten close enough to the boat, the crew used more rope to tie the two of them to the side. So they're literally lashing Maeve and Kip, who doesn't, can't let go, he's got to help hold on to her here, 
lashing them to the side of the ship. Probably maybe somebody holding over, trying to hold on to them, taking turns while others rode. So they just, she's just too big. If they try to pull her over, they're going to flip the ship. Everybody's going to drown. They can't do that. It had taken, taken hours to reach the shore, and Kip had been in the water holding Maeve the entire time. Maeve was moved by Kip's sacrifice, but recognized his shyness of the topic. She thanked him very much, but inside made a note to find a better way to express her gratitude to him in the future more privately. They walked down from the camp towards the beach. The sand was almost white and incredibly fine. It was a beautiful day and the waves gently broke against the shore. Maeve could see one of the lifeboats pulled up on the shore. Artist told her the other was out on the water, hoping to find survivors or their belongings. Several items had washed ashore, though Maeve's weapons and armor had not. So you can imagine that, right? That's heavy stuff. If she had her armor in a bag or in a, in a chest in her room and the ship sank, if that chest or bag even managed to make it somehow out of the room through the ship being shaken around, it's going to be pretty heavy with a paladin's metal armor, right? It, it's going to sink pretty quickly. You know, chest might have had a tiny chance of floating. Uh, but normally if you find a chest floating on the water, even if you're watching a pirate movie, rarely are the treasure chests floating on the shore. The gold and the metal weighs them down. But they do find some personal belongings, some stuff, sometimes just the bodies of, of people who passed. Although at this point, they probably haven't found any of those in days. Most of those would have been sank or um, eaten, if you would, by the ship's denizens, or the sea's denizens at that point. Uh, suddenly Maeve saw something in the water that made her mouth fall open in disbelief. A minotaur stood upon the water a ways out, literally standing on top of the water. He seemed to be riding the water itself, though it did not appear that he was walking. A moment later, she realized that he was actually standing on some type of long piece of wood, using it to glide across the water's surface. Isn't it amazing? Petalaster. They call it surfing. They all know how to do it. Lays said she'd teach me. Lays was Broda's second in command. She was also a minotaur and twice Broda's age. In fact, Maeve had noticed that many of the people in the community were older than Broda, though as Maeve came to learn, each one of them clearly looked up to Broda, unwavering in their support of him. All right? So they noticed, they're like, okay, all the minotaurs and a lot of the humans, other than the kids, of course, most of these people are older, and sometimes even considerably older, than the young Minotaur who is their clear leader. There's, there's no illusion about that. You know, Everyone is happy to see him. Everyone looks up to him. They speak with him almost with a reverence. Which isn't completely outside of Minotaur society, right? Minotaur society, on the other hand, would, is a little bit different than this group, though. Minotaur is, you know, battle prowess. You can win rank through battle and such, uh, in arenas and through actions in war. So, um, but for him to be a pacifist in a group like this, it doesn't really make sense that they would have a younger person as a leader, but they clearly do. And when she looks at Broda, Broda's like a good-looking minotaur. He's not like hideous or anything. Um, he and many of the minotaurs, and even some of the humans, do have marks of battles past. Uh, Lays being the best example. When you meet Lays, Lays is a veteran. While she may not be carrying any weapon or armor and she's dressed in the same type of basic leathers and stuff that they are, uh, the marks on her body show she's fought, and she's fought a lot. Uh, she's very clearly a veteran of multiple different types of battles. So while these people may be pacifists now, 
doesn't necessarily mean they always were. Uh, and if you guys who are watching the video chat here on YouTube would like to see what Broda looks like, I have a mini for you. This is Broda Wave Singer. Make him a little bit bigger here. So as I said, mentioned uh, dressed in basic leathers, shark teeth. His horns, unlike most traditional uh, minotaur horns, are more spiral-like in ram. Some of the other minotaurs in this group have traditional horns, and some are like this. He's not like the only one like this. Um, but there aren't as many with this style, if you will. But with Merge Worlds being a hodgepodge of so many different worlds thrown together, doesn't mean he's not from a world where that's much more common. Okay, And there are a few other like that. It's not like the only one. Like It in itself means anything spe special. But it does stand out from what um, Maeve is used to seeing. Uh, for the rest of you out there who may be listening to the audio podcast, I will add him to my website, onlydraven.com, uh, tomorrow. If you'd like to swing over there under the character section, you can see minis for all the different characters and such that I mentioned through these stories. Um, it's a lot of fun. I, uh, I designed them on a website called Hero Forge and use them as, a, as an easy way to show people what the different characters look like. So that is Broda Wavesinger. Go ahead and pull him down now. So Lays, L-A-Z-E, by the way, uh, like I said, his second in command, older than him, very much supportive. Now, when he speaks, Broda is very clearly intelligent. He's educated, Right? Great shape, but he's also educated. So he's, he's, you know, has had training or knowledge of one thing or another. Probably can speak to matters of court, so on and so forth. Well, he doesn't really give off a <clears throat> ring of nobility, if you will. Um, he does seem educated. Uh, very calm and well-spoken. Uh, definitely gives off a, a confident aura of trust. And it's easy to see that everyone even lays looks up to him. Maeve, of course, thanks him for all the help uh, that he's been to them, feeling as a Minotaur that she should thank him specifically. He's like, of course, uh, you know, smiles and said it was their pleasure to help out. All lives, again, he says all lives are sacred and anything we can do to help save and assist lives, definitely something we want to do. Um, he does make the comment that other than his own people, he hasn't seen another Minotaur in years, right? Um, the area that they're in right now he says, my people are mentors, but we've not seen another outside Minotaur in years at this point. You and a couple, there was, there was only a few Minotaurs on the ship, and one or two of them survived and were part of the crew. The crew was mostly human. Um, but there were a couple mentor, some Minotaurs, and two of them have survived. So there's two other Minotaurs here in the group. Uh, they're not named NPCs at this point. They're just crew members, so on and so forth. Um, but <clears throat> these are the first Minotaurs Broda and his people have seen outside of their own group in a long time. Um, now, he mentions that, you know, he's learned a little bit about their homes, where they're from. They, she's been unconscious, like I said, six days. So he's had plenty of time to talk to artists and Kip and Ran and Petal and learn a little bit about what happened to them, help out where they can, and learn where they're from. Um, but he learned all about their homes, Serenity, Kronayar, which is the Minotaur Kingdom, because, of course, He'd be interested to know about that, as well as Darshtopia, Maeve's father's islands, which are also Minotaur Ram. Um, Maeve, of course, is like, well, you know a lot about us. What about you? Where are you from? You know, for the first ones you've seen in a long in years, and she's just looking at them. Some of these guys are him, especially, and the kids are younger than the merge. That's important. 
This is he is someone who is most likely like her born after the merged happened. So he would never have existed on the original world that his home came from. So if he's been here the whole time, right, since his birth, what part of this new world or such did he come from and how did he and his people end up way out here? Broda looks hesitant at that. And he just kind of smiles and says that that's a story for another time. Because he then points out into the water, look, there, your other ship is returning. And everybody looks and sure enough, the other lifeboat can be seen. He's like, that's a story for another time. Here come your people. We should check on them, see if they had any success. Maybe finding a survivor, although the chances of that are next to none, or maybe found some more of your, your stuff. So, of course, they make their way down to the shore to help pull the boat up. Maeve is feeling quite a bit better at this point with the, her own healing and such. Her personal healing is better than what she can do to other people. So her own healing and stuff, pretty good. She's pretty much up to par, helps pull the, sh the boat in and such, um, and helps load them in. <clears throat> the crew, those that were out in the lifeboat, are very happy to see Maeve as well. They would have known Maeve probably for most of their lives. Happy to see she's up and doing well again. Um, the first mate of the ship was a minotaur named Torg, and he's one of the survivors. And he was on here. He's kind of taken over running the crew since the captain passed. He's, he's not claimed the act of captain because, uh, to be honest, that's something that Darsh would have to put on them since they consider themselves part of Darshtopia not part of Kronayar. They, are, they, they believe their home is Darshtopia. So it would be Darsh's will to promote him to captain if such a thing should happen. So he's still first mate, but he's taken kind of control over the crew, although the crew in itself have been told, you're here to help Artis and Maeve and Petal and Ran, and now Kip. So if they, 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 they would really direct things. If Artis is like, hey, we need you to do this, they're probably going to do it unless he felt it was detriment, like going to get the crew killed, because he is going to look out for his crew. Okay. So first, Torg tells what happened when they were out there. So they returned to the approximate area that they found that the Miss Dandelion had sank in. Um, it is a relatively deep area, and not something that they would be able to just swim down to the bottom and look for things in the ships. Too deep for that. But when they returned this time to that area, they found two ships there. Ships uh, that were slightly larger than the Miss Dandelion, but clearly working in concert. And they found that they were there gathering items and wreckage from the ship. There was at least one mage on the ship, and they were using magic to try to raise things from the sunken Miss Dandelion. When Torg and his people approached the ships, the ships, the captain of whatever the ship is, no specific name, captain of ship number one, we'll say, um was confused and thought that they were part of Broda's community, right? If these ships are from around here and you see some minotaurs and humans in a boat together, oh, you must be from that minotaur-human commune up the beach several hours from here. So he assumes that that's part of Broda's community. And not knowing exactly what their intentions are, Torg is smart enough to say, oh yeah, yeah, we're part of that community. Yeah, we're just out here and saw you ships and thought we'd check in kind of thing. Jim asks if it's deeper than knee-deep. Exceptionally deeper than knee-deep, Mr. Jim. <laughs> um, so they thought they were part of Bro's people. Um, the captain of that ship said that a ship had crashed and that the wreckage had been claimed by Dagger's Bay. And they were encouraged to leave those waters and leave anything from the ship alone. So while not openly threatened or anything of that nature, it was implied it would be best if they got out of the two ships' ways on their 
scouring of getting items. So with magic, it might be possible to bring things from the ship, right? Whether a spell of water breathing or something of that nature or whatever the case may be. There's a lot of different uh, spells that are uh, can fall into the hands of smages, which we are the nickname for sea mages, which is a specification type of mage in Merge World. Mages that specifically work on ships, work on the ocean, and have a lot of ocean water-based spells to help the ship and the crew and so on. So to have things for recovery would also only make sense if they have a good sea mage. Torg, clearly outmanned, outgunned in this situation. Continued the ruse that, oh yeah, we'll return back to Broga and his people, our, 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 our people. Don't mean to get in the way. And then made a beeline to get back home. Hearing this story, Broda explains to them that Daggers Bay is a small city several hours away up the coast. It's run by a retired pirate named Torin Redbeard, and that the place itself is safe enough, um, although it has an incredibly well-defended keep. Uh, basically, the up the coast, the land starts to get a bit hilly, and so the, the, instead of a beach, you start to find cliffs. So the water's crashing against some cliffs, then way up the top of the cliff is the land. So where Dagger's, um, Dagger's Bay is set up, uh, there's clearly a bay that pulls in. So it comes down from the outer hill down into what would be this bay, which has beach area. So ships can come in and out. So the, the city itself is kind of built up a hill and kind of wraps around. And at the, the very, very top, the, there's a bit of, the, it's not a clear flat wall, of course. It sticks out a little bit and there's a fort built on the top. So two, three... Two-thirds uh, two of that uh, keep that's built at the top, where Redbeard lives, is just cliff coming down the other side. Imagine how easy that is to defend, right? Several hundred yards high, sheer rock walls, and a bit of an inlet to get to it that is full of jagged and sharp rocks that no big ship could get in there. Even a small ship would have a hard time getting into that little inlet. Not the bay itself, which is a short distance away, not kind of next to it. But Daggers Bay is a relatively safe place that's become a trader's hub. And while they say it's, he's a former pirate, he's not an active pirate per se, uh, while ships and goods and things may come through that port that not everywhere uh, would view as legal, it in itself is not part of another kingdom. It is its own small city, and it's very well guarded. Um, let's see, where did I go off here? So it's a safe enough place. Uh, it's definitely used as a trading hub for several different cities up and down the coast and several of the on-land kingdoms that are a distance further inland. Um, and Broda himself and his people occasionally trade there as well. Uh, Broda's people sell things that they find, whether it be fish, um, things like that, uh, as well as uh, Broda's people have the luck say luck or ability, that they have access to um, very sought-after black pearls. Where they, where Broda's community lives, not far off on one part of the shore, there's a great reef that goes out a distance. And in the middle of that reef is a small island, trees and so on and so forth. A good enough size island that you could probably barely see the other side of it if there were no trees, right? So a fair amount. And Broda and his people will occasionally live on there as well, because there's good fishing in the reef, and so on and so forth. Um, and they also are, you know, they've, they've come to diving. They've found that uh, while their pearls can be gathered in here, for some reason, just because of the reef and the minerals in the water, whatever, there's a larger amount of black pearls in that area. 
So Broda's people occasionally bring in, hey, we found one or two black pearls. <clears throat> we know this has value. We'll, we'll trade it for things we might need. Tools, uh, clothing, leather. Like I said, the leathers and such that they wear, they don't hunt the animals themselves. They do eat fish. And that's not to say that they wouldn't you know, take out a deer in an emergency. But they don't actively seek out um, land animals for food if they can help it. They'll eat eggs and shit. There's a name for that type of person, but I can't think of what it is off the top of my head. Some of you will remember. And you'll probably tell me in chat. But there's a word for people that eat fish and eggs and stuff, but they don't eat red meat. Um, but they will buy the leathers and furs and things that they may need for blankets and stuff. Um, I know it's a fine line there, but there's reasons behind it. We'll get more into that later. Um, so they'll buy for goods, tools and so on and so forth. While they don't have weapons, they would have like knives for skinning or cooking and cutting food, whatever the case may be. Um, I'm sure that they could very quickly grab a piece of wood, sharpen it, and make a spear if they needed a weapon, but they don't get anything that's specifically designed purely to be a weapon. They might get things like fishing rods, whatever the case they might need. Metal hooks, blacksmith stuff, uh, nails, things that they may not be able to make themselves. So the pearls are... So that's one reason why his people aren't really messed with, because while they may say they're pacifists and so on and so forth, you can imagine people don't want to go over there and piss off a bunch of minotaurs, right? Why? You know, just the knowledge of minotaurs, and there's not a lot in this area from what Broda's saying, that's a lot of, you know, the knowledge of what minotaurs are normally like. They're like, okay, they say they're pacifists, but if we mess with them and they stop being a pacifist, what kind of damage is, you know, over a hundred people of which two-thirds of them are minotaur are going to happen to us, right? It's a lot of minotaurs. Uh, who, when we look at them, can clearly see broken horns, scars, scratches, Pacifist, sure, but look at the damage you've been through and survived. But occasionally you want to bring these pearls in and trade them to us because you have no reason for them. They're probably getting a steal on them, right? They're probably giving Brodinus people much less the value of what those pearls are worth, as well as any seashell jewelry they make, because they probably make other pretty stuff and things as well. Sure, why not, right? Um, probably not just the pearls. Um, so it's, they, it's been found in, in Dagger's Bay, hey, with the Minotaur living there, we don't have to worry about something else living there that could be causing problems. So it's land that they hadn't claimed, right? It's out far enough away from Dagger's Bay that they hadn't claimed it as their own. They don't have any issue. They don't mess with us or anything. They just want to be left alone, which is good for us. And they occasionally bring us stuff that we get for half the price. Why would we want to mess with that? At least at this point, they haven't. So Broden's people are seen as a just a, okay, you're just a group of people that occasionally get us stuff. So there's no negativity between Dagger's Bay or Broden's community at all. They get along just fine. <clears throat> Now, Broda had heard of Dagger's Bay scouring wrecks uh, in the past. Heard of, you know, while in town or talking or people traveling through. Say, oh yeah, there was a ship that crashed and, you know, they were out there. And There's probably still a little bit of piracy going on out there, although it's kind of hush-hush, not as open as it used to be. So he doesn't know very much about that, but he's like, yeah, this doesn't sound like a shock. I, I could believe that they might be looking, and again, originally pirates, finding access to your stuff or your thing, probably make them some profit, so I wouldn't be against that. And again, there are several kingdoms inland and further up the coast that depend on da Dagger's Bay for trade. That's the link that links these different kingdoms together. Redbeard has a very good network of connecting everybody trades to him, and then he trades to the people, and he makes a killing doing so. But there's no issue between Dagger's Bay and Broda's people. You can imagine upon hearing this nose, Maeve, and artist of them, like, well, then we need to go to that Dagger's Bay, because if they've got our stuff, we need to get our stuff back, Right? Because in their mind, like, they got weapons, we got armor. If they are managing to get our stuff off the bottom of the ocean, we lost some important stuff. 
we would really like to get back. Petal was still has her... She ran back and got her pouch. So the book in question from the previous adventure is still in there. And even at this point, none of the rest of the group know the importance. She doesn't talk about it. But she's always aware of where it is. She's very careful of it. And she doesn't bring it up. None of them know exactly why this book is important. And she's avoided any type of conversation that would discuss it. Other than, I'll talk to you. It's something we'll talk about later. I'm still reading the book. I'm reading the book. It's something you'll have to I'll tell you about later. I don't know enough yet. I'm reading the book. Artis was able to grab and had on her Hayward's Handy Haversack, which is the magical pa backpack of holding that she had. So a lot of her basic gear and a large amount of their money, she still had. When she was there dragging her through the water, she was wearing it. Uh, in itself, is not that heavy, being the nature of a bag of holding. Um, but a lot of their basic stuff, she has. So they're in a good spot there that they still have a fair amount of money. Maybe we can go buy some of our stuff back. Let's. What are our options here? Broda says that he will agree to take them there himself. We'll tell you what, tomorrow, several hour rides, too late in the day now, tomorrow, I, I and a couple of my people will escort you there. We're friendly with them. They know us. You guys, obviously, you're a cleric. And while Maeve is a paladin, uh, and she may have still on a necklace or something that kind of hints at that, she's not as obvious as Artis is as a straight-up cleric who still has her medallion on. Um, so, her holy symbol. So, you worship or your your good gods that you're that you're followers of here. This is still a pirate city, so coming in with us, you'll probably be a little bit better uh, received, if you would. Um, now Broda very very quickly urges diplomacy. Listen, I know that they have potentially some of your things that belong to you, and I understand that feeling. And they may feel that these are things that they're digging off the bottom of the ocean, so they're free reign. They have you know. They have a reason for feeling that way, a standing. And I'm sure that if we use diplomacy and talk, we're going to be able to come to some type of solution where we can get back some of the things that are most important to you if they happen to have anything of that nature, which they may not have gotten anything of value. Maybe they've got resources like you know, food or cloth or silks, things that they aren't as important to these guys to get a hold of. But he very much urges not to, not, not to let it escalate into violence. Number one, He's not good with that. They don't like violence. They're pacifists. Number two, it's a very well-armed keep, right? It's, it's going to have a lot of guards there, pirates, so on and so forth. You're going to lose if you, if you try to come against these entire group of people. And without saying so, he's kind of implying you will lose, a.k.a. we're not getting involved in that side. If you get into violence, we can't participate. You, five, will lose. Maeve agrees that diplomacy is the best answer because, again, clear paladin of truth. They're not, it's not like, I just got to fight and kill everything. Um, but at the same time, also states that there are items of theirs that they will do whatever it takes to get them back. Um, Broda nods at that, although she can see he's very disapproving of that kind that pep comment. Listen, yeah, I understand. We're going to be nice. But if they've got some of these things, one way or another, we're getting them back. He's not, he's not liking to hear that. At the same time, Maeve is not real keen on his displeasure. Maeve's like, listen, I understand your thing, but listen, that's our stuff, you know? So there's, there's a little tiny bit of friction there, it feels like, because of that diff kind of different point of view. And raised by Darsh, she's not a punch-first-ask-questions-later type of person. She's, she's just not that way. Um, but with everything they've gone through, and at this point the loss of people they loved that were part of the ship and crew, it's going to sting a little bit to think that theirs and some of those people's stuff may have been stolen, and they want it back. 
So at that point, they return back to the huts for the rest of the day. The next day, they're going to move on to Daggers Bay. Now that evening, the community has decided to have a celebration. Maeve's up and down doing well. Everybody's okay. They decide to have a celebration for Maeve's people, as well as a remembrance for those that were lost. Nothing official happened until they kind of said, okay, we found everyone we can find. And that's kind of what today's determination is. Now that there's other ships out there, they're going to find them before we do. We've done all we can to get any type of survivors, and Maeve is up and running, so we're at the point where we need to kind of have that closure. So it's a, it's a two-fold celebration there. A celebration of life and respect. Uh, there's a large bonfire in the center of the city, as I mentioned. There's plenty of food, drums, music. Uh, it's very hippie, if you will. Very hippie would be a way that I'd kind of describe the community. Hippie. For those of you out there who might be hippies yourselves. <laughs> Dancing. Overall, everyone's having a good time. Um, so, sitting kind of together in a group, it's going to be the five of our friends. we got Maeve, Artis, Rand, Kip, and Petal. Kind of all hanging out, uh, eating and watching the people dance. And Petal probably been up dancing and such. And uh, Kip and Rand would and such as well. Artists and Maeve, a little bit more reserved. Less likely to hop up there and dance around, but watching their friends have a good time. But at this moment we're speaking of, they're all kind of sitting there eating some food, having some drinks and stuff. Um, so they're all kind of hanging out. And sitting with them is... Jim hanging on the woods, right. On the woods, gotcha. Um, so they're just kind of hanging out there, and uh, eating with them is, of course, Broda, as well as Lays, second in command, and uh, Gillen. Now, Gillen is the priest of the community. He's a human, and he's older. He's probably in his late 50s, early 60s at this point. Very balding, very short, thin beard, uh, but what hair he does have is completely grayed out at this point. Um, and he is a priest of Circe. God of goddess of nature, okay? So, Circe is a god that's been mentioned in the past, but we haven't gone into a lot of depth about it. Circe is a goddess of nature. She is um, a goddess of the light. She's considered a good goddess. And she oversees pretty much animals, nature, things of that nature on land. Okay? You're in the woods. Very, very much, very often, uh, other than light, very commonly a... Um, Rangers, goddess, druids, god druids, pretty much are all Circe, um, and uh, a peace, that kind of thing. So a lot of a lot of that. She's a good person, right? So he is a cleric of Circe, which fits in real well with this type of community. Okay. Through conversation, it's the gods of light, neutrality. There's still people who still pray to Coram, god of war. That's the traditional Minotaur god. That's also understood, even if they have turned to pacifists. That's still the god they were raised. You still show some respect now and again. Um, and then the other one that they, they deal a lot with is Aquadius, the god of the seas. Basically, the Circe of the ocean. So Circe handles the on-land nature. Aquadius handles the water nature, right? It seems kind of unequal, right? There's all this stuff on land and stuff. He just handles the water. There's way more water <laughs> in most worlds than there is land. It goes super deep and there are way tons of life forms in there. So that's still a big deal for those races that live on or under the water. Aquadius is the one overseas. Them. Now, Aquadius, being the opposite of Circe, is considered a god of darkness, uh, known to have a big temper hmm, and to be very fickle, right? Um, just because he's a god of darkness doesn't mean he's necessarily straight up evil. It's just kind of not that good, neutral, evil thing. Is There's lists of them, but there's a lot of gray area in between there, right? 
So it doesn't matter if you're a good person or evil person. If you're going to go take a voyage on the seas, you're going to give a little prayer to Aquatius, hoping for a good voyage, right? Because that's that's his jam. That's what he takes care of. And so for these people to live on the ocean and, and dedicate so much of their life to the ocean, it would make sense that they would also pay homage to the god of the, the seas and the oceans with them living so much of a lifestyle of that type. So they're kind of sitting there, um, just hanging out. Um, Lays is by far the largest minotaur in the community. Uh, she's got a reddish-brown fur, although parts of it have started to go gray at this point. Multiple scars, like most of the minotaurs you'd see, probably the most scarred out of all of them. Lays is, a, a uh, again, twice the age of Broda and an extreme veteran. Um, and they're kind of just hanging out there, right? Um, and they're talking about their past. And maybe Maeve is telling some stories. Artis is talking about her mom, the queen. And, of course... Maeve would be explaining Darsh, Darshtopia, which is, hey, much like you guys, Darsh is not just a, hey, we're all about minotaurs. Humans and elves and dwarves, he trades with everyone. All are welcome on his islands. It's a place of peace, but at the same time, he doesn't tolerate crap. A little bit different from here, but he, you know, he's one of those people that's uh, respected by the human communities, the elven community, the dwarven community, and the minotaur community, Kronaiar. He's considered a noble of them as well. He's got his stores and such over there. So he's got his hands out in all those areas. But talking about how he's he's also kind of overall a man of peace and all the things that he's he and their parents have been involved in to save the world and stuff. Lays just kind of makes a comment to Broda that her father sounds a lot like you, Captain. You know, in many ways, he kind of sounds like you. He says, kind of sounds like you, Captain. And Broda just kind of gives her a look and shakes his head. And she apologizes. I apologize, Broda. Your father sounds a lot like you, Broda. She gives a little bit of a moment of silence and uncomfortability there for the friends. And of course, as you can imagine, Petal, the Afghander, says, You're a captain? I didn't know you were a captain. Do you have a ship? Broda smiles and looks at the little Kender and says, Not that kind of captain. Um, and everybody just kind of... And you can see that they're all looking at him for more. And with a sigh, he says, I understand that you want to know more about this and us. It's understandable. You're curious. You've hinted you want to know in the past. Fine. Okay, I'm, I, I'm going to tell you kind of how we came to be here. I'm going to basically tell the story of Broda and his community and how they came to be where they are. So with a sigh, Broda puts down his bowl. I can see your curiosity. It's understandable you'd want to know how a community like ours came to be, so far different from our kind, uh, from the kind of ways that our, our kind normally lives. We do not speak of our past often, choosing to live for the future, but I will share it with you this night. Everybody's kind of settled in, and you see that Lay is a little bit uncomfortable, realizing that her comment is kind of what's making him tell this thing that he clearly doesn't want to talk about. Far, far to the southeast, well over 2,000 miles from here, sits the Minotaur Empire of Jordison. Much like the rest of the world, the Merge had relocated the nation and surrounded it by alien lands. So after the Merge, Minotaur Kingdom is here. It was not on an island. It's on land. Of course, everything around it's different now. And the majority of the kingdom came through, not all of it. The Empire, if you will. Our people found ourselves with neighbors, or found ourselves neighbors with now a human nation, where once in our original world, there was large mountains. We were defended. We were, our kingdom's here with mountains on the side. Now those mountains are gone. 
prairies and farmland and a huge kingdom of humans there. Now, over to the other side of our nation is now a great forest. And there lived, uh, lives a small nation of woodland elves. Wood elves being a little bit different than what Artemis is. More of a, uh, a nature of same primitive style elves. Living there. So our nation found ourselves immediate neighbors with two races we'd never had to deal with before. In a place where we always considered ourselves kind of cut off from the rest of the world. We could build our own destiny and so on and so forth. Our people found us on the To the east, I already said that. Here we go. Almost immediately, the three nations were at war. They fought over land, over resources, and over power. It was not until I was much older that I realized that much of the reason of the fight of combat was, for, was because of fear. Broder goes on to say, When I was born, the war had been raging for years. It seemed no nation could gain a permanent upper hand. I was raised through this. It was the only life many of us ever knew. Kind of commenting to the people that are with him. As you can imagine, I was raised a warrior, as is our way. I excelled in combat, so much so that I was given my first command at the age of 14, the youngest to gain such a rank. I don't tell you this out of ego or pride. It is important for you to know that, in order for you to understand what comes next. Leia's was my second in command, and while the rest of our outfit was concerned over my age at first, I quickly brought them around. It is true, interrupted Leia's. Some were angry at first, but that all disappeared after our first battle. Broda was like a whirlwind, defeating any who stood against him and putting himself in harm's way again and again to protect our men. It took only one battle for us to see the kind of leader he was, and only one battle for our enemies to start calling him Lays, interrupted Broda, silencing the woman. She looked away, clearly embarrassed. So she's like, oh yeah, she's seen it. They were calling, and then he's like, whoa, chill. I'm telling the story. So she looks away, lets him continue. We were victorious, continued Broda. At not only the first battle, but every battle, every mission, and every excursion we were successful at. Again, I was promoted to captain and given a larger command. I was 17 when the Battle of Tears occurred. My company was given the honor of leading the attack. Armies from all three nations had gathered, had gathered in never-before-seen numbers. We've been told the humans and elves had forged a secret alliance, deciding once and for all to cleanse the land of our people, to enslave any who would survive and force them into lives of servitude. General Corgan gave a great speech. He spoke of honor and battle, told us we fought to defend our people, our children. We were told we were fighting for our very survival. Broda's face then takes on a look of anger, yet all of us were deceived. When the battle began, we tore into the enemy. My command fought directly against the humans. So you can imagine humans, elves, they're still side by side. It appears that humans and elves may still be skirmishing, but mostly it's Minotaurs against them, the elves being the smallest group of the three. Um, again, we tore into the enemy. My command fought directly with the humans. They could not stand against us. We cut through them like a scythe through wheat. I can't tell you how many lives I took that day. Far too many to remember. But I remember the last life that I took very clearly. We were in the heat of battle, and we were routing their forces. 
it seemed that victory was imminent, only a matter of time. Two humans stood before me on the battlefield, unmoving. They did not run. They would not flee. Humans are all so much smaller than us, Broda said with a sigh. I sometimes still forget quite how much so. These two were smaller as well. Why should that be any different than normal? I approached them and I saw their weapons shake in their hands. I took pleasure in their fear. It took me only seconds. The first hit the ground, his head crushed by the weight of my shield, and in a single movement my trident slipped past the sword of the second, piercing the man right through the chest. I hit him so hard, his helmet, which was too large for his head, flew off, and I could only stand there shocked. The small body at the end of my weapon belonged to a human child. He could have been no more than ten or eleven years old. He hadn't stand to fight me. He'd been too afraid to run. He did not know how to fight. This was not a warrior. It was not any form of worthy foe. With blood flowing from his mouth, the boy still lived and tried to say something. I set him down and kneeled next to him. Though battle raged around me, I struggled to hear his words. And he whispered, Please don't hurt my mother. It was the last thing the boy ever said. I knelt there in shock. What in the hells was going on? Not far away, I saw another human fighting against one of my command. I pushed back everyone, pushed through them, through the others fighting, and he turned to fight me. I easily knocked away his weapon and grabbed him, lifting him clear off the ground and into the air. I began to question him. Why was he there? Why was he fighting? Why did his people make war on us? My people saw. Many of them came closer, both to protect me, because I'm not fighting at the time, I'm holding this guy up in the air. You know, they, my people don't want me to get stabbed in the back by some human or else, right? And also to try to figure out what was I doing in the middle of battle, holding up a human and shaking him with him in one of my hands. The man was too afraid to lie. He said he was fighting to protect his home and his family. I learned my people had been attacking and pillaging and murdering both the humans and elves for decades. Both the humans and the elves, multiple times, reaching out, begging for peace, begging for some type of... of, of, of that's what I'm looking for. Um, agreement. Hey, let's, let's make peace here. We were taking their crops and their animals and pushing them to a point of starvation. The humans that fought us now were the last that were able to do so. I was killing, nay murdering, farmers, merchants, innkeepers, and even children. I set the man down. I was in shock as were the people around me. There was no honor in this. This was not war. It was genocide. I commanded my people to stand down. Without hesitation, they obeyed. The humans, what few elves were in the area, stood there confused. Why did we stop attacking? They could not understand what was happening. The order to cease spread down the lines. Within a few moments, the three armies, or what was left of them, stood there on the battlefield, mingled and kind of just staring at each other. 
Several other captains made their way to me, questioning my actions, assuming I'd been given orders. I told them the truth. Most were as surprised as I, though on some faces I saw the shame of those who already knew. What he means by that is, I'm telling these people, these are this we've been lied to. These people aren't warriors come to kill us and take over our people. That's what we've been trying to do to them. Some of those faces go shame because they knew, right? If they've been doing that, some people had to knew, had to know. Sorry, wrong word. You can imagine that. <laughs> if a military is out there just slaughtering innocent people, somebody knows. Some people were doing that. You can see some of the faces in the group, which were obviously a part of that. It wasn't long before General Corgan and his men arrived, demanding to know what was happening. I could see that over in the humans, several of their leaders had arrived as well. I told the general what I'd heard. I demanded to know if it was true. He grew angry at my insubordination, commanded us once again to fight the enemy. And once again, I demanded to know the truth. Furious, the general told me it was the command and the will of the empire that we cleanse the humans and elves from the land so that the empire could grow from their lands and wealth. Yes, we're going to take them. We're going to take the lands and wealth. It's all for the empire. That it was our destiny to rule and that these weaker races did not deserve to live. Everything I'd been raised to believe, everything I'd ever fought for, crumbled in that moment. I dropped my shield to the ground and told him I would fight no more. The general was enraged. He called me a coward and a traitor. He said that I was no better than a deserter one of the filthy humans that stood across from us, and that I would be stripped of my command, and that he would sentence me to death. We stared at each other for a moment, with my own anger rising. Then come and execute your judgment, I said. The journal drew his sword and came at me. My blood boiled, and my anger seethed. I felt a rage inside me unlike anything I'd ever felt, and a roaring filled my ears. The sound of waves crashing against cliffs, for some reason, was all that I could hear. It's what it sounded like. Kind of like when you put a, a shell to your ears, you hear the ocean. In that moment of anger, it just sounded like the ocean swirling and smashing against rocks in my ears. The general was a skilled warrior and an ex experienced was skilled and experienced warrior. He'd been in his position for many years and had fought many lesser. And when his corpse hit the ground a moment later, no one knew what to do. I swore to everyone who could hear me that I was done with death. I would fight no more forever. I walked away from the battlefield, my home, and my empire that day. No one tried to stop me. There was... So that's, that's how he kind of said, okay, kill the general. That, he said he remembers well the last life he took, and that was that of the general. He took the general and he said, I'm not going to fight anymore. And I can't be a part of this type of shit. And so, turning, he walks off the battlefield and just goes to leave. There was a moment of silence around the fire as the companions took in what they had just heard. Finally, Lays spoke. There were many of us who followed him off the field that day. It was clear he had more honor than our leaders, and we too embraced his oath, leaving our warriors' lives behind us, ready to learn a better way to live. Broda smiled. Few of the humans followed as well. As we traveled, searching for a new place to call home, 
we found more like-minded individuals. And finally, we found this place a few years ago and made it our home. Here we are safe and free to live our lives our way. So hearing all this, companions, of course, a little bit of awe of all of this, okay? This explains, obviously, why they're there. Also explains why all of them look like they had been in some battles, even Broda. Although he's not as injured as, as you'd expect. Um, but from what him and what Lays is saying, that he was just an incredibly skilled warrior, obviously, to do what he just said. Lays is basically saying, yeah, none of this is embellishment. This is 100% true. Artis finally reaches over and puts his hand on Broda's, puts her hand on Broda's hand and smiles and says, as always, it was the truth that set you free. You can imagine that makes her feel pretty good, right? She's a cleric of truth. He learned the truth and he made the right decision. Truth set him and his people free from the lives that they had. She obviously approves of this decision. Broda smiles, of course, and agrees. Yes, it was truth that led us free. Maeve, of course, is a little bit conflicted there, right? She agrees with everything. She thinks, okay, that's really honorable. At the same time, it's hearing that there's minotaurs out there that would be like that. At the same time, knowing what she knew of Cronear's past, because she would have grown up, Darsh wouldn't have hid the truth from her, how they fought against each other, how there was the, uh, the, the group that was trying to assassinate him and his family, all that business was going on. Uh, they got their own dark history of attacking humans and such before they all finally allied. So... To hear this, it's not a shock, but you could imagine it just knowing her own past and, and what type of person she was is going to make her conflicted to think there's other people that are like her doing that type of thing. Grim again, a moment of silence, Broda smiles and says, if you excuse me, I think I'm going to go ahead and turn in for the evening. We have a, quite the journey to go to Dagger's Bay tomorrow, and I wish to be rested before we leave. He thanks everyone for attending it, encourages them to enjoy uh, the rest of the, the fire and the celebration, and... Uh, excuses himself from the dinner, goes and returns to the tent, his tent. Once he was gone, Lays once again began to speak to the group, advised that the people here adore Broda. They followed him thousands of miles to find this place and would follow him anywhere, into the hells themselves. Petal, once again, being a kender, with slight lack of uh, diplomacy, can't help but ask, what was it the humans used to call him? Lays hesitates only a moment and says that he was known only as Reaper, as a Reaper, death himself. To see him on the battlefield meant your end. So you can imagine he slaughtered many, and the opposite of the life he has now. Celebration continues. Everyone turns in for the night. The next day, Broda, Lays, and several other of, of his locals, probably people who were going to go in their town anyways, hey, it's a good chance. Let's go in there, make it a regular trade thing. We got a few of these black pearls saved up. Surprisingly, they have more of the black pearls than they let on. They have a, a fair little stockpile of those, you know. But they make it two or three at a time, right? A, it keeps them valuable, and B, they don't want anybody thinking, oh, let's go in there and take them all. You know what I mean? Somebody finds out they got a bunch of them, that might incur some type of, of problems. They don't want that. So a group of them, along with our heroes, travel to, to Dagger's Bay, which only takes a few hours traveling along the shoreline. As I mentioned, I described what it looks like. Uh, they're coming across the hill. They make it into the city proper. They can see, as I mentioned, like I said, the, the 
as they're coming at it from the land, the, the keep is very high up. And it's a very narrow path to get to it. It's very well guarded with walls. And they can see it. It would be very difficult to attack that keep. One reason explains why the pirate took this place, right? Redbeard chose this area. Specifically of how easy it was to defend. Although the keep looks like it's been there a very, very long time. So he probably either took it or bought it or one or the other. Um, but it would. they say that the thing is, if you had enough supplies, it would be nigh unbreachable. You know, could definitely... Uh, handle a siege for quite a period of time. The city itself had clearly marked guards, although many of them looked very more than ruffians. Uh, they didn't cause any problems. In fact, most people were genuinely pleased to see Broda. Broda and his people were like, oh, hey, we haven't seen you in a month. Awesome, come on in. They were known as good people and fair traders. So, of course, many of the people's stalls and booths, you see a lot of little shops and stalls and booths, market kind of, kind of city there. A lot of it's a a jumble town, right? It's not going to be as much big houses and stuff. Well, there are a few, probably in probably an inn or two, things like that. A lot of it's more of a, a kind of a janky, um, hand-built kind of a design, right? Broda again is greeted warmly, although they do the whole group kind of senses a little bit of hesitancy when they see artists, right? Artists who is clearly a cleric. You know, she's wearing her cleric robes. She probably put on nice ones for this specifically. Remember, she had her Hayward Tanning Haversack. She got her fancy robes in there and such. Um, there might even be some backup weapons in there, although none of them are carrying... They're carrying their weapons openly. Let me rephrase. Maeve doesn't have any weapons. All of her weapons were lost, as well as her armor. Right? Kip still has his sword, because he wouldn't have been anywhere without it nine times out of ten. Or not Kip, I'm sorry, Ran. Kip probably has his, at least one of his daggers, probably both of those. Uh, Petal, who only carried a staff-like hoopack, that's lost. So she probably has a dagger, although it's more hidden, so she doesn't have anything open. So you can imagine the guards, and an and artist doesn't have her uh, her warhammer anymore either. So that was lost. So the only active weapons really would be Rand's sword. Rand still has his sword. Um, which, of course, the guards are like, ooh, you're hanging out with Broda, but you got a weapon. We've never seen that before. They don't draw attention to it, but you can be sure that they noticed it. Even though they seemed slightly hesitant at the sight of artists, they were still very welcoming. Hey, come on in, so on and so forth. And they, the, the group comes into the city and begins looking around, right? Because they're not immediately going to go up to the keep, kick the front door down and say, give us our stuff back, right? Their first thought is, let's try to do this the best way. Let's look around some of these booths. For all we know, maybe some of our stuff might be here and for sale. We have a fair amount of money still in our Hayward Tandy Haversack. Maybe we can buy a bunch of our stuff back. You know what I mean? Avoid any type of real issues, even though technically we're buying our own property. It still might be the easiest way to go through this. So they start going around shops looking for any signs of anything from the Miss Dandy line uh, that might be rec recoverable. And they spend some time looking around. While there are many things to sell, very extravagant and exotic goods as well, they don't find anything that jumps out as something from their personal belongings. Speaking of Broda, Broda says that it's possible that the possessions are in their stuff is currently in the hands of Redbeard, right? It's possible they just may not be out of here yet, especially if they've recently got them. Maybe he's keeping some for himself. Maybe he's going to try to sell them outside of uh, Dagger's Bay. Or maybe they just haven't reached it down here yet. They're checking out and seeing what's in there. Um, they need to try to... They, it's determined we need to try to find a way of seeking out knowledge on this stuff without kind of tipping our hand. We need to find out where our stuff is, if it's here, what they recovered, 
Did they recover anybody? That's another big one. They're looking for familiar faces from the crew in case someone survived. But they also don't want to draw too much attention because, again, if people become known that they're looking for their stuff, it might make it harder to get back, if that makes sense. While they're standing there in the marketplace having this conversation, Artist gets a chill down her spine. Gets a feeling like somebody's watching her. Looks around, doesn't see anything, and casually turns to survey the market area behind her. She turns and stops, freezing. Just a, foot, just a couple of feet from her stands a familiar face. Although, he looks sick, if not weak. Quintius steps towards Artis. You have to help me. I've been taken. And that's where we're going to stop for today. Quintius, of course, being the projection of the magical scepter artifact uh, that Artis has been carrying. Quintius, I mean, she's in range of it. Close enough that he can finally appear to her. But she's never seen him ever appear anything than other than what, you know, perfect health. For some reason, for him to look sickly or weak, that's a concern. And if he's been taken, who has he been taken by? And what are they doing to him? These are questions for next episode. <laughs> so, uh, two weeks from now, we will continue this story. Continue with uh, Maeve and Artis Petal, Rain, and Kip, and our new friend Broda and his community, and see if we can find out what has happened to Quintius and what else may lie before them in this new land uh, that they have been thrust into. Uh, perhaps, maybe, uh, their futures. Hmm? Teresa says, really a cliffhanger? I try on occasion, yes, once in a while. I like to do that, not too often. Plus, we're right at about an hour and a half, and I do try to keep Merge Worlds between an hour and hour and a half at this point. Uh, again, I've mentioned this over the last few episodes, but uh, people had commented that three-hour episodes sometimes made it really hard to stay caught up. So I do try to keep it between an hour and an hour and a half at this point, make it a little bit easier in consumable chunks. Uh, but our next episode will be two weeks from today, and we will be continuing this storyline. We'll be staying with um, Maeve and artists in this group for some time, much like we did Seraph's story for good five, seven episodes, I think, at that point. We're going to be staying with these guys for a while. Definitely up to and potentially past episode 100, which we are only a few episodes away. And I'm trying to plan something special for that. So hopefully you guys will continue to hang out with me and uh, give me the chance to do that. Um, but that said, I'm going to call this one a fond day. Thank you all for coming and listening to me tell my tale. Again, if you enjoyed the stream, please remember to click like. Even if you're watching or listening to this 10 years down the road, it definitely helps out. Uh, and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. But if you have an iTunes or uh, uh, Spotify or any of those podcast uh, sites, if you will, it would be awesome if you wouldn't mind going and giving the podcast a follow. Uh, if you'd like to leave a review, give us the five stars, all that kind of stuff. Uh, definitely trying to spread the story to as many people as possible. And every time you guys do that on an episode or on a podcast, uh, it definitely helps their algorithm put this podcast in the ears of new people. So thank you all very much for your support. I hope you enjoyed today. I enjoyed hanging out with you. Uh, but we will see you here again uh, two weeks from today, where we will continue with a little bit more Merge World. Stay tuned uh, on my Discord channel. Um, 
Links down in the bottom of the description of this, or you can go to my website, onlydraven.com. Here in the next few weeks, like I said, I'll be scheduling a special stream, which is a D&D slash Merge Worlds AMA uh, that's been requested. So uh, that'll be for the end of the month. Keep an eye out for that. But you folks, I hope you all have yourselves a wonderful evening, a great rest of your week, and I hope to see you again here in two weeks for a little bit more Merge Worlds. Have a great day. Thank you.